All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 10, and there are more names. Um, Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. We've all been in situations that we just didn't quite understand. Um, If you've ever visited a different country where they speak a different language and you hear people go to talking, it may sound like chaos to your ears. Everybody else around you understands it because they speak the language, but it sounds like chaos to your ears. I have a note here that computers are a different language. Um, Sometimes people talk about computers, and yes, the things that they say are just the ways that it works. It just seems like chaos. It does not make sense. It does not look like things that we understand. Um, If you've ever been around like a scientific or a medical conversation, I've heard some of those before, and at first you think you're talking to somebody that speaks English, and then all of a sudden they start talking science or medicine, and you don't, they don't speak the same English that we speak. And so all of a sudden it becomes kind of difficult for you to understand. So um, it seems like chaos in your eyes, but others can see the order. Others can see the logic, and others can see the reason. So when we look at our world today, a lot of times all we can see is chaos. We see there's, there's morality pushing this way further and further and further away from God. We see violence and war. We see crime and we see people making these really illogical steps and all we see is chaos. But let me tell you this morning, when God looks down on this world, yes, He sees the disorder, He sees the sin, He sees the problem, but He also sees His plan. And He sees His plan working down through the generation And he knows exactly how that's going to happen. So the sermon in a sentence this morning is, although we may see nothing but chaos when we view this world, God sees his divine plan of salvation in full effect. And so if you could describe the way that the world was kind of after the flood, as the world began to repopulate after the Tower of Babel, you might say chaos. You might say chaos for a number of reasons. Um, there, there was, there was a, a, a lot of smaller nations, um, and as we know, nations can never be at peace, so there was constant conflict, there was an empire that would rise and an empire that would fall, and all these things were going on, but also there was the daily chaos that was going on, especially um, because we're going to finish this story talking about Abraham. Now, Abraham would have originally lived in the area of Mesopotamia. That means the land between the rivers. Those rivers would flood. Now we think about today, well okay, so you would just move or you would be prepared or you would have some way to handle that, some, some levees and some dams and things like that. Well this was a long, long time ago and they didn't have some of the things that we have and so there could be chaos because of that, there could be chaos because of a health problem, you know, as, as bad as, as maybe the COVID thing was and maybe as bad as it had been handled the reality is there were, there were people and there was medicines and there was science involved, whereas if something came along back then, there was very little that people could do to actually protect themselves or even treat the problems that they were facing. The world was chaotic in those days. And so as we read this passage, um, it's going to seem very like normal. It's going to seem like this person had this child, this person had this child, and then Abraham did this thing and God said this. But you have to understand that in the middle of all of that was tremendous chaos and upheaval because the world was not set. There was not, there there were not kingdoms and nations and, 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 and country lines drawn and boundaries respected. It was a different time back then. It was chaotic. And God looked down in that chaos and saw his plan. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. I'll actually go through chapter 12 
uh, verse 3. So uh, we'll, we'll go a little bit further. And yes, there are some names. Some of these aren't as bad, and some of them, even though they're not bad, I can't say. So we'll get started. Uh, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, or when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered his son two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered his son 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shem's son had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And um, Shem's son lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Now Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Uh, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. Uh, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. Uh, when Reu had, uh, and Reu lived after he had fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and all who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, or in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so what I want to start with is what Shem saw. And I'm not going to do math like up here, but I've done a little math about how old Shem would have been when certain things were happening and just looking at basically what you see here, piecing some things together. And I feel like I had done this before, but it's really interesting to see some of the things that he would have saw. So one thing that I need to say beforehand, it's important to remember that sin didn't get washed away by the flood. In this passage, you don't have a whole lot of sin or a whole bunch of things that this is, well, he did this and it was a horrible thing and God punished him. You just kind of have almost like a clinical telling of, of who were the fathers and who were the sons kind of going right down the list, but we know that bad things continued to happen. And so that's something that we need to mention. So even though our, our passage doesn't speak of the sins of men, we know the world became filled with evil very quickly. 
So before, and, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler, but before Shem dies, there is Sodom and Gomorrah. Just so that you know, um, that's how quickly from the flood to the end of one man's life that sin had, had that much of a reign and that much power in the world once again. So we know that the sense of brotherhood that everybody should have had uh, was, was gone very quickly, if not before Babel, certainly after Babel, that sense of brotherhood because they had descended from three family lines, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They had descended from those three family lines, but already that was broken to the sense that people did not look at others as brothers and sisters, as kindred, as valued family members, but rather as just other people that could be used for their own gain. They were already looking to people like that. Now, when you look at the, the, the Genesis narrative up to this point, it seems like every time there's something bad, God shows his grace right after. And so when Adam and Eve fall into sin, God shows his grace. Um, Genesis chapter 15, uh, when Cain uh, kills his brother Abel, almost immediately God shows his grace by giving him that mark that would protect him and sending him out. As you go down through the list, Every time you see like an act of judgment, it comes right back with an act of grace. And so after the flood comes the rainbow. But after the Tower of Babel, there's no immediate sign of grace. But yet this passage shows us that after the Tower of Babel, God introduces us to Abram. We know him better as Abraham. And so Abraham is that blessing. Abraham is that um, grace that is shown right after. So God brings Abraham onto the scene and promises to bless all families on the earth through Abraham and his family. So how do we get there? So this genealogy that we have here follows simply the family line of Shem himself. It follows him running from Shem to Abraham. And it is very much like what you have in Genesis chapter 10, but it adds uh, five names that we didn't have in uh, chapter 10. So Reu, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham, those were names that we didn't have in chapter 10, so it gives us those names as well. Now, Shem lived for 500 years after the flood, which means he saw more than what we might would suspect. So if you take where it says... You know, so-and-so was, was 35 years old when he had a son. And then he lived 403 years after he fathered this son, had many other sons and daughters. You add that together, that's how I'm getting some of these numbers about how, what Shem would have saw. For example, for example, he outlived both his son and his grandson. Probably many, many others, but of the named ones that we get with their ages and everything... We know that he would have seen the death, maybe, maybe not physically, but he would have known of the death of both his son and his grandson during his lifetime. That's incredibly difficult. And you think about a man that would have to go through that after having went through the flood, this would have been a man that you would think people would listen to. This would have been a man that you would think would have been the kind of person everybody would have went to and said, hey, we know you've been around since before the flood. Let's listen to you. But it doesn't seem like that was the case, not at any particular example. Um, he probably saw many um, of, of his other descendants die, but he lived to be 600 years old, which means he was only 390 years old when Abram was born. So think about that for a minute. He was only 390 years old when Abram was born. So he saw all of Abram's life, Abraham's life. In fact... Uh, he would outlive Abraham by 34 years. So just think about that for a minute. This man would outlive Abraham by 34 years, so, or 35 years. When you think about all the things that happened in Abraham's life, 
And you think about the fact that there's a whole nation of Egypt by this point. When you think about there's, you know, there's, there's so many things going on. Sodom and Gomorrah completely happens. The rise and fall completely in this man's post-flood lifetime. That's really impressive to think about what he saw. So he would have, and although he didn't live near Canaan, so don't, don't, don't get me wrong, he doesn't live near Canaan. He probably continued to live in, in the region of Ur or Mesopotamia anyway. Um, it's just interesting to know that he lived that long. So this man saw uh, the earth destroyed, reborn, and thoroughly saturated with sin once again. So he saw all of that. Now, you know, right now, those of us that know history are probably jumping up and down saying, hey, history's repeating itself over there. History's repeating itself. We're seeing some of the very same things happen, again, that we've already seen. And some people, maybe even not necessarily in their lifetime, but in very recent memory are saying, hey, these things have happened. Well, Shem lived through the flood. He saw the way that the world was before the flood. And then he saw 500 more years of how the world degraded once again, came, became sinful, thoroughly sinful once again. All the trends that he would have seen happen again, this would have been a guy that could have been saying, hey guys, you're not going to like where this goes. I know God's not going to flood us, but he's not going to ignore it either. You're not going to like where this goes. But yet people probably didn't listen to him, just like they didn't listen to Noah. Was Shem a preacher of righteousness like his father Noah? Well, we know that from him, God chose to bring forth Abram, and then through Abram, God chose to bring forth Jesus. So there must have been something in his line that would have been good, and you would think that he would be one of the ones declaring this. Now, we all know what it's like to have an older family member and to, to know that that person is a source of wisdom, but can you imagine that person being 600 years old? having seen the world, the world's population drop down to, to single digits and come back. Can you imagine that kind of person and that kind of perspective? So those are some of the things that Shem saw. He saw God's judgment. Uh, he saw God's favor. Uh, but he watched as the generations once again began to ignore their creator and just walk away from everything that you know he would have tried to pass down. You know he would have tried to pass it down. Hey, listen to God, follow in his ways because his judgment is real. I wonder, I really wonder if maybe by the end of his life people weren't already treating the flood like a myth. Even though he was alive, an eyewitness of it, I wonder if people might not have already begun to treat it and talk about it like it was a myth, something that didn't happen. So when we think about it, and, and I'm going to say this later, but I'll go ahead and say it now. So we think about the way that the world would have changed in that 500 years. Um, we probably all have at least a vague idea of what America would have looked like before it was discovered, right? Before, you know, Europeans would have discovered it. So that was 1492. And so we're talking about, you know, roughly 500 years of time from when it was discovered and, and, and mostly untouched to what it is today in that same period of time. So could civilizations have risen and fallen? Well, they have in the, in the last 500 years around here. Could cities have been built? Could whole trends and whole things have changed? Absolutely. I think about what's changed just in my lifetime. Uh, you could talk about technological advances. You could talk about social changes. You could talk about the degradation of morality. Things have changed drastically in my 40 years. Um, so you could talk about that. But then when you think about 500 years, things could really change. And so that's some of the things that Shem would have saw. 
So now let's talk briefly about Abraham's journey as it begins. Okay, so what, I, what I'm going to deal with first is just what we see in Genesis. I'll mention something else in a minute, but right now, um, this, this little portion here basically um, from Genesis chapter 11, verse 47 um, through 32, that introduces um, Abraham, it introduces Sarah, and it introduces Lot. And those are your main characters for quite some time. Uh, it also mentions Sarah's barrenness. Now, that's her big problem, and that's going to be one of the things that kind of helps us to see as this story unfolds, God's blessing and God's goodness. And it also, by this point, Abram already knows that Sarah is barren. And, and, and so it helps us to recognize the faith that Abraham has to believe God that he's going to be a great nation when his wife cannot bear children at all. It is a very interesting thing to see that. So a little bit further background uh, from Abram in chapter 4. Um, it, it, or, this, this is a little bit of extra background for Abram in chapter 12 is, is what this is. Um, so Abram married Sarah. Uh, Sarai at the time, and his brother Nahor married Milcah. And so that was, that was, there's a really great Jerry Clower bit on Milcah. If you've never heard it, you need to find it. Um, it's, it's very hilarious. Um, but anyway, um, Genesis chapter 11, verse 31 tells us of Abraham's departure uh, with Terah, his father, Lot, uh, and Lot, son of Nahor, and, and Milcah, uh, that, that he, therefore he was the nephew of Abraham. The party moved northwest up the Euphrates River and stopped at Haran uh, in northern Mesopotamia, a journey of about 1,100 miles. Um, 1,100 miles is a long way to go now. It's a really long way to go on foot, and it's a very long way to go when you realize they would have had to have moved their entire household. You, you, you couldn't have just traveled, said we're going to go on a day trip. That, that wouldn't have been possible. They'd had to close down their home. They'd had to gather their servants, gather all of their animals, because it wasn't necessarily a monetary-based society. It was very much a commodity-based society. So they would have had animals. They would have had um, you know, just a whole like farm basically going with them, traveling on this great journey. So this would have been a big, big, big move. Now, when we read in, in Genesis chapter 11, it says that Terah led the family. When you read in chapter 12, it says that Abraham was still in Ur and God told him to leave. You read in the New Testament, it also says that Abram was told in Ur to leave. And so what seems to have occurred here is, well, anyway, in Genesis chapter 11 seems to be a summary and then it starts over kind of more fully. So just like you have Genesis chapter 1, God made everything. Genesis chapter 2, here's the story of God making man. It seems like Genesis 11 is, you know, God moves Abram to Canaan. And then Genesis chapter 12 explains all the details of how that actually come to pass. And so that seems to be what we're looking at here. Terah died in Haran. So that is a, uh, a, probably just a reminder for him. Uh, his son that died in his presence was also named Haran. And so that definitely seems like that had an effect on him being, that was the end of his particular road. Uh, he stopped after that. So again, the New Testament tells us that God called Abram. And, and, and that isn't a conflict in any way. Probably Abram told his father, God is telling me to go, telling me to, to move along. 
And so we've talked about the fact before in, in, in other studies that we've done that Abram probably would have grown up in a reasonably pagan society with all kinds of other gods and, and things like that going on already because that was definitely the case of Ur during the time that Abraham would have lived there. But also we have to remember there's Shem who is alive. And, and, and he would have known the one true God. He would have known everything that God had passed down because it would have been his job to pass it down. So there would have been a source of truth. There would have been a way to know the one true God, the promises that God had made, who God was, and the fact that it's important to obey him. So Abram would have had some context of God, some framework of actually following after God during this time, although many of his family members had went to paganism. So it seems like Abraham received this calling from God, and he shared it with Terah, and Terah said, well, if you're going, I'm going. And, and so that seems to be kind of the way that the process started, and then it seems like it changed once they reached Haran. So there's no conflict between the Genesis account, the New Testament, and chapter 11, and chapter 12. It seems like it all fits very well. Terah just chose to travel with Abram. So, um, a great journey. So we're moving on now. We're going to be looking at God's promise to Abram. So we're really specifically looking at verse um, 1, 2, and 3 of, of Genesis chapter 12. But I do have a few things to mention first. Um, a journey like this would have been dangerous for any number of reasons. Um, think about everything of value that you have. Literally everything. Money, jewelry, any other kinds of very valuable possessions you have. And then think about your cars and your home and everything that you have. Imagine if you had it all with you at one place and then you got robbed. You can imagine how terrifying that is just in terms of now you're alone in the world with no means and, and, and no, no options for anything else. That was the kind of scenario that this kind of move was. Now, absolutely, Abram and Terah, they would have had servants. They would have had men, even fighting age and fighting ability men with them. But depending on how they got hit, you may never know. They may have lost a lot of what they had. They, could have de they definitely probably would have lost out when they moved anyway. So it would have been a very unorthodox move to begin with. Um, so it would have been something that would have been very, very difficult. So Abraham and his family would have just had to carry everything. Um, and, and it seems like when we think about it, because it only takes us a couple of verses to get here, that they may have been walking into absolute desolation, which that, that probably would have been better than walking into populated areas with all kinds of dishonest people. But that's not the case. Because we know how quickly a world can populate, how quickly times and people and, and, and places can change, and that's definitely how it is. So if you have moved around a couple of times, it's, it's always kind of fun, sad, weird to go to the town that you used to live in and see how different it is. Um, you know you've been somewhere a long time when all of your directions involve, well, it's where the Piggly Wiggly used to be, or it's where this used to be, or it's where that used to be. You know you've been living somewhere a while when you don't know what's there anymore, but you know what it used to be there, and so that's where you tell people where to go. And then somebody that's new to the area says, well, I don't know where that used to be. And, and you're like, well, you know, 20 years ago, that's how it was, and you know you've lived there too long then. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, the world changed. The world changed, it got full of people, it got full of sin. Those kinds of things were happening, and that's the kind of journey that they were in. So humans would have spread all over the region, uh, and they would have filled it up, and they would have built cities and done all those other things. And like I say, if, if you think that this, is, this might be odd or it may not be enough time, our country has not yet celebrated its 250th anniversary. So think about that for a minute when you think about the fact that we're, we're, we're not quite that old anyway. I did the math wrong, didn't I? Did I? 
How old are we? Anyway, we're not old anyway. We're not 300 years. I know that. I would, I would have had a quarter for that. Um, so anyway, um, even before the advent of modern machinery, we would have changed the world. Maybe we couldn't build towers. Maybe we couldn't have built the same kinds of roads, but we would have changed this world. That's just how humans are. And so the world would have changed. It would have taken on the shape of man rather than the shape of nature, the way that God would have had it. So you think about now, I remember one of the first times I rode into a big city and I saw tall buildings and I thought, wow, that's cool. But now when I ride in there, I think, huh, I wonder how God made this look. You know, before you see all the hands of man and all the things that we've done, you think about, what would God have done with this if we hadn't have gotten the way? And so I think about more how beautiful it would be if we didn't mess with it than, than looking at the tall buildings and thinking, oh, how great we are. That seems a little more like a Nimrod thing to do now. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it biblically. Um, but you look at all these tall buildings and you say, look, look at what we have done. That's exactly what he was doing and why God judged them in that moment. So... Um, but even before all the, the modern machinery that we have in America, we still spread pretty much from coast to coast um, before, we, before we really even, I mean, we, had, we already had cities in California and on the East Coast, and we decided to build a railroad track in between them. So uh, we were definitely getting there pretty quickly. Um, Abraham, in this, in, in this whole story, and, and yes, Abraham is not a perfect man, but he is a man of faith. That's one thing that we have to remember is that while he may not be perfect, he does believe God. That is one thing that he never wavers on, although he, he has difficulty, he never wavers on that. So he leaves Haran, and this is another thing the math will show you, he leaves Haran when his father is going to live for another 60 years. So he did not wait for Terah to die before he leaves his father behind. His father decided to settle there, and Abram goes on. He, he moves on. Now, we don't know he probably did stay in Haran for a while, for some time, but, but he does leave. Terah is still alive and would live for another 60 years. And so that lets you see a little bit about his faith. So he put his faith in God above family loyalty and possibly even what you would consider family responsibility. So with Sarah and Lot and whatever would have been considered his household, he, went, he left from uh, Haran and traveled another 400 miles to Canaan. Um, and so when we get this promise here in Genesis chapter 12, um, there's, there's basically four things that we've got to see in it um, that, that, that basically God says, so three are on kind of like a, they're directly to Abraham. These are things you're going to get. And then the fourth promise is way more uh, wide reaching. And so as we look through those, we'll see those things. So number one, God said that he would bring Abraham or make from Abraham a great nation. This is a big promise coming to a man whose wife is barren. So that was a great thing. So why does God say this? Well, one reason and something that we should think of just from Abraham's own level is that Abraham is losing his country. He's losing his nation. Um, does he deserve to have his very own nation? Well, who knows, but, but he's leaving his own nation. He's leaving his hometown, and not just his hometown, but his home country, his home region of the world. He doesn't even know what language they're going to be speaking when he gets over there. I mean, this is a whole different ballgame. And so he is leaving all that, and God is saying, from you, I will bring a great nation. So it's replacing one thing that Abraham gave up when he left. Another thing is that God says that he would bless Abraham. 
Now, something you've got to realize is that when you leave this homeland, when you leave this place, you are leaving your inheritance. So there are things that he definitely took with him, but there are definitely things he had to leave behind. And those things he, he is definitely losing. So there is a great part of his inheritance that he would not have had because it would have been in Ur or Haran. So he would not have had those things. God also is going to make Abraham the possessor and dispenser of blessings. So he is going to be blessed and he is going to be a blessing to people. God made that a promise to him. And so all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. So that's, that's part of what God promises. Um, and, and here's the thing. What God says is that um, you are going to be blessed and anyone that dishonors you, so um, it's, it's, it's a less word. So I will bless those that bless you, and then even a lesser word, dishonor. So it's not all the way to curse. So it's not saying I'll curse those that curse you. I'll curse those that dishonor you. And so what God is saying is that, that, that when someone is dishonorable to you, he's going to curse them. So there's a very heavy penalty on basically dishonoring the line of Abraham. So that is, that is definitely a thing. And you say, well, why would anybody mess with them? Well, because of covetousness. People are jealous because the line of Abraham has always been blessed. God said they would, and they have been blessed. So you look at, you look at down through the ages, why have the Jews been persecuted and things like that? Well, they've always been reasonably wealthy. They've always been blessed because God has given that to them. It's part of his promise. It's built into the word of God, built into what he told Abraham. And so they've been blessed. And so people get jealous and they get you know, covetous. And even when you look at Hitler and, and, and Nazi Germany there, well, the, the Jews had not paid any into Germany in terms of helping them continue in World War I. And so they became the big villain throughout that span of time between the two wars, we lost the war because of the Jews. The Jews didn't pay their share, all this kind of stuff, so and so on and so forth, this big propaganda campaign, and now you can actually gather them up and kill them. That was all part of the jealousy that God's people had been blessed, and so they were, they were basically cursing them at that moment, and God has and will continue to pay that back. Um, so thinking about this from, from this perspective, uh, that final blessing is not just a blessing of right here and now. That final blessing is also much grander. So, so Abraham walked through the land knowing that God was watching out for him. So if someone dishonored him, God would curse that person. But that promise goes far beyond just simply what we see in Abraham's life or even far beyond what we see if, if you treat the Jews bad, you get treat, treated bad. It goes far beyond that. Where does it go to? Well, ultimately, through Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. We understand that to be an early promise of Jesus Christ. And so when we consider that promise, when we see that through all the nations, God will bless people through Abraham to all the nations, then we begin to see that God right there was already promising Jesus Christ. And so the line of Shem, God, you know, God had brought him down, Shem's still alive, but God has narrowed it down to a, down to a pinpoint at Abraham and show that this is where the blessing is going to come from. Shem was alive when this happened, but, but Abraham was the pinpoint of God's promise, God's focus. It went all the way down to one man. So Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis chapter 11 is focused on the world. 
all people, everybody that was alive, this is what's happening. But then God narrows his focus and he puts it on Abraham. And on Abraham, he says, there's going to be a blessing. And this blessing is not just going to be for you and your family, but through you, this blessing is going to be for all people. And so this, this family of God that he has created is going to reach uh, through the generations, providing uh, forgiveness and redemption for everybody. But it's only through Jesus Christ. And so when we see this story, this kind of finishes up this story of the early part of Genesis. And God has brought it all the way from creation, through sin, through the flood, through everything else. He has brought it to the end where we now have the family that is going to bring forth Jesus Christ himself. So, in conclusion, concluding not just this sermon, but concluding this study, there's some things that we have studied in this book that I believe are facts that need to control our thinking about things, right? So you're, you will always hear new scientific discoveries. You will always hear new ideas and theories about the origin of the species and the origin of this world and all those things. But you must remember the Word of God and let that dictate how you think about things. So one thing, God created the world out of an act of His will. It was not an accident, nor was it part of a natural event. So when people say, well, this proves that nature made nature, doesn't even make sense when you say it, but that, that's the kinds of things that people will say is that there was a natural phenomenon that occurred and that's what created everything. Well, that doesn't make sense. God made the world. So whatever anybody says, God made the world. If there is evidence that things changed after God made it, that does not disprove the fact that God made it from the beginning. As we continue looking, God created mankind to be the recipients of his love and good favor. He did not make us to be punished. He did not make us to suffer. He did not make us to die. He made us to be loved and to receive his blessings. What changed? Us. We sin. We sin and we brought that kind of pain and suffering on ourselves. But don't let me get ahead of myself. Not only did God make mankind and make them to be recipients of love and favor, but he also made them male and female. It needs to be said in this day and age that God chooses our gender. We don't choose it. It doesn't matter what you say, what you think, what you believe. God made you. God made you the way that you are. And so that's something that we have to say as Christians. We do have to say that because some things are beginning to get out of hand as far as the way that the world is going. God made us. Don't let anybody that seems smart, that seems wise in the way of the world, confound your thinking. Believe what God has said. Male and female, he created them. It's simple. That, that's the beauty of it. It's not some deep conversation that takes a college degree to even understand, and most of the time you think they're making things up. Hint, they are. But the reality is we have to believe what God has said. We have to believe what God himself has put before us. Now, although we were intended to live lives in perfect harmony with God, sin broke that harmony. This is also a biblical point. And so when we wonder why things are bad, why suffering, why all these other things, it's really as simple as saying that we sin. We sin. God did not intend these consequences. These are consequences of our sin. They are put before us because of our actions, not because of God's judgment. So many things that we think, well, why is God letting this happen? When we think about sickness, when we think about famine, when we think about war, when we think about all these things, why is God letting this happen? These are all natural outflows of sin. 
this world was not designed to handle sin. God didn't make this world thinking, okay, they're going to try to break it and I'm going to make it extra tough. No, God made this world to, to, to have humans who would love him, who would obey him, who would live for him. He would pour out his love and blessing and we went and ruined the whole thing. And so now when we see all of the terrible things that are happening, we don't need to look to God and say, God, why are you letting this happen? We need to look at each other and say, why are y'all continuing to break it? Because that's what's happening. We are breaking this world over and over again. We're breaking our lives. We're we're breaking our families. We're breaking the earth that we're living on through our sin. And we need to take responsibility for that and, and don't blame God for those kinds of things. When we look at it also, our only hope of re restoration, because we see what God did with the flood, we see what God did with Babel, our only hope of restoration, restoration actually comes through Abraham. Abraham, his family eventually would bring forth Jesus, and Jesus is our hope. We must trust in him. God lived as both man, or Jesus lived as both man and God on this earth. And while the flood could not wash away sins, the blood of Jesus can. And so just like Abraham, who just believed God, we must believe God. That is our way to forgiveness. That is our way to restoration. I believe that's what Genesis 1 through 12 tells us and teaches us. And so when we hear contrary truth or contrary information, we need to remember where did we get our thinking from? We got our thinking from Scripture. It came down to us from God Himself. This is not by the invention of man. Man has had no interference in this. God has told us what happened, why it happened. He has told us the consequences of what has happened. And He has told us our, His plan for how He's going to resolve these issues. Trust Him. Believe Him. No matter how wise someone seems to be, they are nothing compared to God. Listen to Him. Through that, you can find the answers that you need. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for this time to study Your Word. I thank You that You have made things plain and clear for us. You made this world. You made us. You made us to receive Your love. You made us to receive Your blessings. We made ourselves into sinners. And because of that, we desperately need rescuing. We know that the only way to be rescued is through Jesus Christ himself. So Father, those of us in this room, I pray that we have already placed our faith in you, that we have been rescued, that we are living in the light of salvation and in the love of Jesus Christ. But we know that the people in the world around us are not. And Lord, we know that it may be just like the days of Noah when he declared your truth, he presented your, your message to the world, but they ignored him. We may be living in days just like that, but we still have to speak your truth. And I pray that we will. Help us, Father. As we have studied your word, let us proclaim your word. There are too many people in this world that don't even know. They haven't had a chance to reject you because we haven't told them. I pray that we will tell everyone who you are and let that be a message that can be received. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.